Hi, crime junkies. It's Ashley here. And you all know how ready I am at any moment to drop down the rabbit holes of mysterious cases to look for answers. And there's actually one right now that I cannot stop spiraling about with more rabbit holes than I can count. In this season of Counterclock, investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra begins investigating Doug Wag Jr.'s mysterious death after he was found struck on a strip of railroad tracks. But the more Delia has dug into this case, the stranger things have gotten. And you guys, there is truly so much going on. A string of mysterious deaths, a bank robbery gone wrong, conspiracy, corruption, and it may all be connected. You can binge all of Counterclock Season 6 right now in the Crime Junkie Fan Club, or you can listen to new episodes weekly wherever you get your podcasts. Home is your creative canvas, an expression of your unique style. Only Wayfair has everything you need to bring your vision to life. It's the place to shop for everything home, from sofas and beds to dining sets and decor. Wayfair makes it easy with fast and free shipping, even on the big stuff. They'll even help you set it up. Our house is full of Wayfair finds, from wall art to rugs to vases and more. Our go-to is always Wayfair. Every style is welcome in the Waverhood. Visit Wayfair.com or get the Wayfair mobile app. That's W-A-Y-F-A-I-R.com. Wayfair. Every style, every home. Brought to you by the Capital One Venture X Card. Earn unlimited 2X miles on everything you buy and turn everyday purchases into extraordinary trips. Plus, receive premium travel benefits like access to over 1,300 airport lounges and a $300 annual credit for bookings through Capital One Travel. Unlock a whole new world of travel with the Capital One Venture X card. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Lounge access is subject to change. See CapitalOne.com for details. Hi, crime junkies. I'm your host, Ashley Flowers. And the story I have for you today is about a man who shook the city of Los Angeles to its core. Despite operating in plain sight for almost two decades, it took a twist of fate for his reign of terror to finally come to an end. But questions about the full extent of his crimes still remain to this very day. This is the story of Mac Ray Edwards. It's the morning of Friday, March 6, 1970, and a man named Sergeant George Rock is on duty at the Foothill Community Police Station in Pacoima, California, which is just north of L.A. The Foothill Division is actually part of the LAPD that serves multiple communities in the North L.A. area, and it's been a normal day so far. And so when an adult man and a teenage boy walk in, Sergeant Rock isn't anticipating anything out of the ordinary. But what this man tells him is anything but normal. He says his name is Mac Ray Edwards, and they're there to confess to a kidnapping. According to reporting by Lee Dye for the Los Angeles Times, Mac pulls out a gun, hands it to Sergeant Rock, and says, quote, Be careful, it's loaded. This is no joke, so the sergeant takes them back to talk to get a formal statement. 
Now, here is the wild part. This is where our source material loses track of the teenage boy that he's with. There is very little out there about who this kid is, why is he with Mac, or even what ends up happening to him after this whole ordeal. We know he's handed over to juvenile police, but after that, he kind of just disappears from the story. And that story that Mac goes on to tell is wild. He says that earlier that morning, like 5.30 a.m., he and this 15-year-old boy broke into the home of Mac's old neighbors, the Coens. Inside, they found the Coens' three daughters, 14-year-old Jan, 13-year-old Cindy, and 12-year-old Valerie. Mac and the teenager rounded them up and herded them into his camper truck, grabbing a few items on their way out, like the family coin collection. After he got them all into his vehicle, he says that he drove off and went up into the foothills of the Angeles National Forest. Once there, he stopped the vehicle and ordered all three sisters to get out. At first, they didn't want to, but he pulled out his gun, the same gun that he had just handed over to the sergeant, and so they complied. Once they were outside, though, Val took off in one direction, and then Jan darted off in the other, and in the confusion, Cindy was able to escape, too. Max says that he tried to look for them, but when he realized that they were gone, he shouted that he was going to get the police and send someone to find them. And then he and the teenage boy left. What's wild is that he actually did go to the police, but not for the police to go after the girls. He knew that turning himself in was his only option because the girls recognized him. He admits to Sergeant Rock that his plan was to sexually assault and kill the girls. Because again, he knew the girls would recognize him and he wouldn't get away with it if they were left alive. Once Sergeant Rock learns where the girls were last seen, he sends officers to the Bouquet Canyon area of the Angeles National Forest. And they do find all three of them. They're physically unharmed. And so even though they are incredibly traumatized, they get to return home to their parents that same morning. So thankfully, this whole story has a happy ending. Or at least the happiest ending there can be. The girls are safe. Mac is in custody. The end. But that would be a really short episode. No, the officers who hear this story aren't so sure that this crime is the only one Mac's ever committed. I mean, this all seems really practice, right? Like the way he got into the house and the fact that he was able to coerce the sisters to cooperate. It feels like he's done something like this before. But when they look Mac up, the only thing that they can find is an arrest for vagrancy all the way back from 1941. Now, keep in mind, this is 1970. There isn't like a national database that they can search at this point. But at least locally, there in L.A., he's never been arrested for anything else. But we crime junkies know just because he hasn't been arrested before, that doesn't mean that he's led a crime-free life before he decided to kidnap three girls. And that's the moment when Mac looks at Sergeant Rock and says that there are other matters that he wants to discuss. And then he begins to unload everything that has been weighing on his conscience for over a decade, starting with a murder from 1953, one that's gone unsolved for the last 17 years. He explains that on the evening of June 20th, 1953, He was in Norwalk, California, which is a city in Los Angeles County. And while there, this little girl caught his eye. Her name was Stella Nolan, and she was just eight years old. 
None of the source material I have explain exactly how he got Stella to go with him, but he tells Sergeant Rock that he drove her to his house, sexually assaulted her, and then strangled her. He then threw her body off a nearby bridge, believing that she was dead. But he went back to check on her later that night and found that she was still alive. So he then stabbed her and moved her body to a construction site. See, he works in the construction industry as a heavy equipment operator, and so he knew where he could dump a body so that it wouldn't be found. He says he buried her in an embankment, and that embankment ended up becoming part of the Santa Ana Freeway. Now, at the time that Stella went missing, the search for her was massive. Hundreds of searchers had combed nearby buildings, fields, anywhere they could think of. It seemed like police suspected that foul play was involved pretty much right away, but lead after lead went nowhere. And it seemed almost impossible that no one had seen what had happened to her. I mean, there were plenty of people around who should have seen something. And the police interviewed countless people, including any local sex offenders that they could track down. Even a man who had been arrested after he was seen lurking around some local children. But Mac, Mac was never on their list of sex offenders. And since he hadn't been arrested for any other crimes against children, he just flew right under their radar. That search for Stella went on for weeks, and eventually it just went cold. And her parents were left wondering what happened to their daughter for years. Every now and then, her name would pop up in the news, mostly around her birthday or anniversaries of her disappearance. But as time went on, her name faded from public memory. But if everything Mac is saying is true, then Sergeant Rock finally has their guy sitting right in front of him, ready to take him to the exact spot that he buried Stella. But just when Sergeant Rock feels like he's heard it all, Mac keeps talking, and he says that Stella wasn't his only victim. Three years after Stella was murdered, Mac says that he set his sights on two more kids. His 11-year-old sister-in-law, Brenda Howell, and her friend, 13-year-old Donald Baker. At the time, he was living in Azusa, California, which is a little northeast of L.A., and he was living with his wife, Mary, who was Brenda's older sister, Brenda had been visiting the two of them for the summer, but in early August, the end of her trip was coming up. The Los Angeles Times reported that on the morning of August 6, 1956, Mac paid Don $7 to bring himself and Brenda to the foothills of San Gabriel Canyon in the Angeles National Forest. This is just north of where they lived. And there Mac stood, waiting for them on one of the trails. Mac explains how after the two approached on their bikes, he lured Don away first, around the corner and away from Brenda. It was early enough in the morning that no one else was around. And so after they were out of sight, he picked up a rock and beat him with it, incapacitating him enough so that he could slit his throat. Afterwards, he went back to where Brenda was waiting and slit her throat as well before taking both of their bodies and dumping them off the side of a hill. After they were both dead, he took their bikes as well as Don's jacket and left them in two different places around town. One bike and Don's jacket at a nearby dam and the other bike at a local school. When Brenda and Don didn't come home that day, another massive search for them ensued over the following weeks, and both of their bikes were discovered by searchers. But unlike when Stella disappeared, the police came to a different conclusion. They decided that the two had run away together. 
It turns out someone who knew Brenda told police that she had mentioned that she didn't want to return home at the end of summer because school was going to start soon and she just didn't want to go. Never mind that their bikes were found in perfect working condition, so there wasn't a reason to abandon them. Never mind that saying you don't want to go back to school is a totally normal thing for every 11-year-old to say. And never mind that neither of them had ever expressed wanting to run away before. But the police ran with the theory. And after about two weeks, the searches just stopped altogether. Brenda and Don's bodies were never found in those searches. And since foul play was never even suspected, Mac was able to get away with killing his wife's sister and her friend for years. But as disturbing as the murders of three kids are, those aren't the only ones he kept hidden. Looking to save on delivery? DashPass from DoorDash is your door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. DashPass is an exclusive membership from DoorDash that gets you unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders and members-only deals and discounts. Whether it's food from your favorite restaurants, groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass is the most affordable way to get everything you need delivered right to your door. DashPass basically pays for itself in two orders on average. Plus, DashPass gives you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, all for only $9.99 a month. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. Pride yourself on finding the best deals and savings? Rakuten is the smartest way to save money when you shop because members get cash back at over 3,500 stores across every category, including fashion, beauty, electronics, home essentials, travel, dining, and more. Your favorite stores like Macy's, Urban Outfitters, and Sephora pay Rakuten a commission for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the commission with its members. That's you. Cashback is deposited directly into your PayPal account, or Rakuten can send you a check. You can even maximize your savings by stacking cash back on top of other deals, like store sales and coupons. Shop for everything from fashion to beauty, home decor to groceries, even kids' school supplies. You're already shopping at your favorite stores, so why not save while you're doing it? It's a no-brainer. Membership is free, and it's easy to sign up. I love using Rakuten because I truly don't even have to think about it. The app is just there, hanging out and giving me cash back on so many of my normal everyday online purchases. All I have to do is shop. Get the Rakuten app now and join the 17 million members who are already saving. Cashback rates change daily. See Rakuten.com for details. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N.com. Your cashback really adds up. Matt goes on to say that he took a break after Brenda and Don's murders. But 12 years later, on November 26th of 1968, he struck again. This time, he says he broke into a home in Granada Hills, which is a neighborhood north of Los Angeles, with the intention of assaulting a young girl who lived there. But instead of finding her, he ran into her older brother, 16-year-old Gary Rocha. Gary was not his intended victim, but now that he'd seen him, he couldn't let him go. So he forced Gary into his mother's bedroom, ordered him to lie down on the ground, and then he shot him. But Gary didn't go down without a fight. And even though he was shot, he got up and lunged. Mac says that he shot Gary a few more times, and then Mac ran out of the house. Now, unfortunately, I couldn't find much of any reporting from the time that Gary was killed. Definitely not to the extent of Stella, Brenda, and Don, at least. 
And the same can be said for his next victim, 16-year-old Roger Madison. Roger went missing from his home in Silmar, which is also a neighborhood north of L.A. Mac explains that Roger went to school with his son. And while sources differ on exactly how close they were, Roger definitely knew Mac, and so he felt comfortable with him. Roger was last seen leaving his home on his motorcycle December 14, 1968. It's unclear how he encountered Mac, but Mac confesses to stabbing Roger in an orange grove in Silmar. And then he buried his body on the Ventura Freeway in Thousand Oaks, which was under construction at the time. The last victim he confesses to is the murder of a 13-year-old boy named Donald Todd. Donald went missing on May 16th of 1969. Mac says that he saw him riding his bike while he was driving down the road, so he pulled over and offered to help him find a job. Donald engaged with him. He put his bike in the back of Mac's truck, after which Mac abducted him and then tried to sexually assault him. Donald fought back, though, but Mac ended up shooting him and then dumping his body underneath an abandoned bridge. Unlike some of the others, his body was actually found the next day by some hikers. But despite having what all the other cases didn't, again, a body, his murder went cold. Now, this is where Mac's confessions end. And this sergeant's head has to be spinning at this point. I mean, this dude just came in out of nowhere and confessed, not only admitting to cases that have gone unsolved for decades, but cases that were never even connected to one another before. Every single one of these was worked individually. No one at the time was looking for a serial killer of children. Needless to say, Mac was arrested and charged with two counts of murder and three counts of kidnapping. The murder charges were for Donald and Gary since their bodies had been found. And I'm not 100% sure why they can't charge him for the other three. I assume it was because you couldn't file murder charges without a body in California at the time. But when I looked into it, it turns out you could. So potentially it has more to do with a lack of evidence or something else that's just not been reported on. But just because he's not charged now, prosecutors don't think it'll be long before they can slap him with charges for others. Because as part of his confession, Mac tells Sergeant Rock exactly where he dumped the bodies of Stella, Brenda, Don, and Donald. So they put together search teams to try and recover their remains. The first kid that they go out and look for is Stella. And just five days after Mac's confession, they head out to the Santa Ana Freeway in Norwalk. Mac directs them to a pile of compacted dirt and when they dig, they uncover the skeletal remains of a girl that looks to be between 8 and 10 years old. Official identification is a little difficult at first because dental records don't exist for Stella. But between Mac's confession and the fact that her body was exactly where he said it would be, they are confident that this is her. So next, they send a group to search for the remains of Brenda and Dawn. But unlike Stella, Mac didn't bury them. He just tossed them from the roadway. And since it's been over a decade since they were murdered, combined with the really rugged terrain of the area he dumped them in, the police were unsuccessful in recovering any part of their remains. Roger's body, though, that's a bit of a different story. Since Mac says that he buried him underneath the Ventura Freeway, the operation to dig it up would be a lot bigger than the other recovery efforts. And it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of resources to get in there and find him. Not to mention, they would have to shut down the freeway for an indefinite amount of time. 
And even though all of that effort seems well worth it to give his family the closure that they deserve, they decide to put the recovery on hold. So ultimately, there's just one more murder charge added on for Stella. According to reporting for The Independent, during his arraignment, Mack tells the judge, quote, I don't need no lawyer. I'm guilty. But despite clearly just wanting to enter a guilty plea and be done with it, his lawyer enters not guilty pleas for each charge and gets approval to submit Mac to psychiatric testing. I don't know if that testing ever ends up happening, though. And he actually fights his lawyer every step of the way to be able to enter a guilty plea. There's even one hearing where all he says is guilty over and over every time he's addressed. Throughout this whole ordeal, he attempts suicide twice in jail, and eventually he is allowed to enter a guilty plea for all of the charges against him. Max states that he wants the death penalty to, quote, pay the supreme penalty, and he gets his wish because he ends up being sentenced to death on May 22, 1970. At his sentencing, he explains that he turned himself in and confessed because he had a guilty conscience. He had trouble sleeping after all he did, and it started impacting his ability to work. And get this, he says that since he's a heavy equipment operator, the results of him making a mistake at work could cause people to get seriously hurt, which is an absolutely twisted thing to say considering that he is admitting to killing six children, but like he has to confess so adults don't get hurt. It's so freaking weird. Anyway, after he's sentenced, he is sent to death row to await execution. But before he dies, he shocks everyone because it turns out he has one more confession for police. At some point after his sentencing, Mac tells the police that he didn't just kill six kids. That number is more like 18. And even though that is a huge admission, it's actually not very surprising because police have already been looking at that 12-year gap between when Brenda and Don were murdered and then when Gary was murdered, and they were thinking there's no way that this dude just quit for that long. Now, after he confesses to this 18, that number fluctuates a little bit. Like, sometimes it's 18, sometimes it's 20. But he tells literally everyone he can that there is more than just the original six. And I'm not sure what police think about his confession at the time, because, I mean, we all know it's not unheard of for people on death row to try and say that they have more information in order to put off their execution. But it doesn't seem like that was his motive, because on October 29th of 1971, he actually dies by suicide in his cell. Whether Mac gave police names, dates, locations, anything like that for those other potential victims before he died, I don't know. And unfortunately, after his death, the investigation into these other possible murders just kind of stops. Police get pulled in other directions, and after a while, it seems like that's that. Mac's dead, and six families at least have some answers as to what happened to their loved ones. But not the rest. And to me, that doesn't seem like a good enough answer. I wanted to know what other cases he could possibly be connected to. To do that, I needed to know what kids went missing around this time or in this time span. And as I was digging into this, I learned that there's a reason why maybe the investigation stopped or the reason why I was running into brick wall after brick wall because I couldn't find a list of kids that were missing in this time frame. And this is when I learned the most absurd fact that I have ever heard in possibly all of my crime junkie days. 
It turns out that during that time, at least in that area, the police would destroy the files of missing kids when they turned 18. Like, just gone. They basically said, like, oh, they're adults now, so they're not missing kids, but they're still missing. They were kids when they went missing. And just because they're adults doesn't mean they're, like, let go and now living their life. I cannot wrap my head around it. And because they threw those out, that means any statements that were taken or notes the original investigators made, everything is just gone. I have no idea why they thought this was a good strategy. Because again, it's not like once a kid turns 18, they're suddenly just not worth looking for or the circumstances around their abduction has changed. It is infuriating. And it makes me wonder just how many cases of missing kids have been lost to time. And how many families could still be out there wondering what happened to their loved ones? And I can't help but wonder if they even know that there is no file to go back to. No one looking for their loved one. So if police have just tossed these kids aside and aren't looking for them, then that leaves it up to us. And people like an author named Weston DeWalt. And it's Weston DeWalt who finds himself falling down the rabbit hole of a decades-old mystery that he never expected to go down. A rabbit hole made for crime junkies. You see, in the fall of 2005, he was researching trails near his home in Pasadena, California. And as he's browsing through a few articles, he kind of stumbles on this case of a little boy who went missing on one of those trails. And luckily, even if case files don't exist, many papers are archived so these kids can't be erased completely. The kid that went missing was named Tommy Bowman. And right away, Weston is baffled by his story. Basically, Tommy was just eight years old when he disappeared while on a family hike on March 23rd, 1957. The family was near the end of the trail, just like a quarter mile from their car, and Tommy told his cousins that he was going to go beat them, and he just, like, took off running. He ran around the corner, out of sight from his family, and then just vanished. He was reported missing later that same evening, and a thorough search of the area followed. Over 400 people scoured the trails, the woods, anywhere that he could have gone, and police interviewed people who had been out on the trails themselves. Now, fortunately, a few people did report seeing Tommy. They also reported that a man was following him. The witness who saw the guy who was following Tommy described him as about 40 years old, having tan skin and unkempt hair. A local woman created a sketch of this man, and it was widely distributed. But if the police ever got any tips from this sketch, they never went anywhere. At the time, police suspected that Tommy was the victim of foul play, but no trace of him was ever found. And so tragically, the case went cold. Now, Weston becomes obsessed with this story. It baffles him because, as we all know, little kids don't just vanish into thin air. So in true crime junkie fashion, he starts researching. But there's just not that much out there. And he's not satisfied with the lack of information. So he actually reaches out to Tommy's now elderly father, Eldon. He and Eldon are actually able to meet. And thank the good Lord above, because Weston is given access to the old police records from the investigation. You guys, here's a little tip. If you have a loved one who is at the center of an unsolved case, keep as much as you can. You are not guaranteed that police will. 
As we've seen here, records can be thrown out. Evidence rooms burn down and flood. And it sucks that families have to play the role of record keeper, but no one will care the way that you do. And one day, those records could be the difference between unsolved and solved. So Weston gets all of the stuff that Tommy's dad has been keeping. And Weston goes on to use that and continue his research. And he's researching and researching. And eventually, by chance, he comes across an article about Mac Edwards. And I have to imagine that his heart just stops. Because there's a photo included in that article. And he looks at the photo. And then he looks at that sketch of the man who was seen following Tommy. And he thinks... This can't be the same person, right? I mean, he goes back and forth, but the resemblance is just too similar. And so he starts researching Mac, too. And what he learns is that Mac's M.O. fits Tommy's disappearance almost to a T. But when he takes his suspicions to the police, they say that they're going to need more evidence than just some resemblance to a sketch. Which, to me, is like, what the f***? Guys, it's not like you've been expending a ton of resources into this case over the last few decades. Also, it's not like this suspect is just like some neighbor of his that he's holding a grudge against or the local Good Samaritan. He is quite literally bringing you a serial killer of kids. So I feel like it might be worth taking a look at, no? But Weston is not letting it go. So in August of 2006, he gets in contact with Max, now widow Mary Edwards, who, remember, was also one of his victims, Brenda's sister. The two of them sit down to have dinner along with a few of her other family members. Weston brings with him a consultant from the California Department of Justice. And over the course of this dinner, Max's sister drops an absolute bombshell. Summer's almost here. Are you ready to throw open your windows or throw them away? If they're drafty, foggy, or impossible to open, talk to your friends at Window World. Window World specializes in home transformations with beautiful, energy-efficient windows, entry doors, and siding, featuring Energy Star certification and the good housekeeping seal. Call 1-800-WINDOW-WORLD, schedule your free consultation, and tell them you heard it here on Crime Junkie. Window World, America's exterior remodeler. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Spring is about fresh starts. That could mean starting a new venture or switching things up on your website. Squarespace is the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. Use Squarespace to design a website, engage with your audience, and sell anything from products to time all in one place. With the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint, you can select from curated layout and styling options to create a personalized website optimized for every device. Get your website discovered fast with integrated, optimized SEO tools. Plus, make checkout easy for customers with easy-to-use payment tools. Accept credit cards, PayPal, Apple Pay, and in certain countries, give customers the chance to buy now and pay later with Afterpay and Clearpay. Selling content on your website? Add a paywall to sell memberships or courses or sell downloadable files. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com slash crime junkie to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. She produces a letter that Mac had written to Mary before he died. 
In the letter, he recants his confessions, indicating that he took the blame in order to help one of his friends, who he says really did commit the murders. But this statement is largely rejected, mostly because, aside from that teenage boy that he kidnapped the Cohen girls with, Mac has never mentioned any other friend. Also, that teenager doesn't match the description that he gives them of this quote-unquote friend. So they believe that his mental health was suffering severely at the time that he wrote this letter and that none of it is real. But what does seem real is a statement that he makes later on in the letter. According to Andrew Blankstein's reporting for the Los Angeles Times, that letter reads, quote, I was going to add one more to the first statement. And that was the Tommy Bowman boy that disappeared in Pasadena. But I felt I would really make a mess of that one. So I left him out of it. End quote. With this, the police are finally convinced that he's responsible for Tommy's death. And his disappearance falls at the beginning of that 12-year period where Mac denied murdering any other children. But now that they're sure that he could be connected to at least one more, the police start trying to find others. They begin by retracing his steps, looking at where he lived, where he worked, and seeing if there are any other unsolved cases that match up with those times and places. And sure enough, there are four other cases from the L.A. area that fit within his M.O. Bruce Kremen, Karen Tompkins, Dorothy Brown, and Ramona Price— Around the times that they all went missing, there wasn't too much reporting about them. But I'll give you a brief overview of each. Bruce was just seven years old when he went missing back on July 13, 1960, from a YMCA campout. He had been at this campout with a group of about 40 people. But at 2.30 p.m. on that afternoon, he refused to go with his group on an outing. And I'm not sure if the camp counselors were just like, yeah, cool, see you later, or if they left an adult behind to hang out with him. But come dinner time, they realized that no one had actually seen him in a few hours. He was reported missing, and a search got underway. But just like so many of Mac's victims, no one found any sign of him. The area where he went missing was known for being pretty treacherous, like lots of cliffs and hills, so they just assumed that he probably had wandered off and fell somewhere that they couldn't get to. So eventually, the search was dropped and his case went cold. 11-year-old Karen was last seen at a playground on the evening of August 18, 1961. Right away, her family worried that she had been abducted because as far as they knew, she was a happy kid. She wasn't having any issues at home or school. She hadn't even talked about running away before. There was a massive search that followed her disappearance. And even though the police detained a man that they thought could be responsible, he was eventually cleared. And with no other leads, the police had to move on to other cases. Ramona was the next to go missing. It was September 2nd, 1961, and the seven-year-old walked away from her home after telling her dad that she was going to go walk all the way to the new house that they were going to be moving into. They were getting all packed up and ready to leave, and her dad just thought she was joking. So he's like, yeah, okay, whatever, go walk. Even though her dad thought she was joking, Ramona was as serious as ever and as determined as ever. She left, headed to the new house, and then never came home. Just like so many other stories of missing children, her parents reported her missing that same day and a large search involving helicopters and dozens of searchers ensued that night. But no one was ever able to find any trace of her, despite her going missing literally in broad daylight. 
And finally, a little less than a year later, 11-year-old Dorothy left her home on her bike on the evening of July 3rd, 1962, and vanished. I'm not sure where she was going, but when she didn't come back home, her father actually went looking for her, and he found her bike just a block and a half away. She was reported missing that night, and again, right away, the police did believe she was abducted. And unlike literally all the other stories that we've covered today, the police thought right away that Karen and Dorothy's disappearances could be related. They were both 11. They both had blonde hair and blue eyes. But the difference was Karen was never found, and Dorothy's body was actually found the day after she went missing. She was found unclothed, floating in the ocean about 40 miles from where she had disappeared. She had been sexually assaulted before her death, But with it being in the 60s, especially since she was in the water, they couldn't find any physical evidence on her that would lead them to her killer. So now that police know Mac's M.O., investigators are pretty confident that these four cases are connected to him. But when they go to actually do a bit more digging and try and link them officially, they run into a huge roadblock. Oh, yeah, we threw away all the files. Which means that the current investigators have to start entirely from scratch. But the fact that they have no files, pretty much a lack of evidence, everything proves to be super difficult. And so they decide to take another look at the places where Mac lived and worked around the times that all four of them went missing. They're thinking this is the only way they might be able to connect him to those cases. Now, they know that he buried Stella under a freeway, and he claimed to have buried Robert under a freeway, too. So they're thinking, okay, where was he living? Where was he working at the times that these other kids disappeared? For some reason, they focused in on the house that he was living in at the time. I'm not sure why they headed to the house first, but they searched the property. They used both cadaver dogs. They used ground-penetrating radar to try and find any kind of remains, but they don't find anything at the house. But then in 2008, in another search for Roger specifically, they actually hone in on this freeway that was being built at the time that Roger went missing. Andrew Blankstein reported for the Los Angeles Times that they bring in cadaver dogs who consistently alert to a patch of land right next to the freeway. So next, they use ground-penetrating radar, which shows an anomaly right next to where the dogs alerted. So with all of these signs pointing to something being under the freeway, they start digging. They even get in contact with Roger's family and get a DNA sample ready to go so that whenever they find him, they're ready to make the identification as quickly as possible. So they dig and they dig, but they find nothing. No sign of Roger, no sign of anything. Most recently, in 2011, investigators shifted their search to look for Ramona Price's remains. At the time of her disappearance, Mac was working on a nearby bridge, and they think that he might have buried her nearby. So just like the search for Roger, they brought in cadaver dogs, who all alerted to the same spot near this bridge. They start the process of excavation, but just like with Roger's case, they come up with nothing, and they eventually have to stop their search. I know dogs aren't perfect, but this is too much of a coincidence for me. Maybe they alerted just off the freeway because of how soil shifts and how gases and liquids move under the earth. But remember, Mac worked in road construction for most of his life, and he was part of building some of the most traveled freeways in the L.A. area. So if he were going to bury bodies, it's not a stretch to think that he might bury them in a place that he knows is going to be covered with asphalt. Even though these searches were happening as late as 2011, and I can't say that they've given up on these kids, 
As far as I can tell, no other searches have been done for the remains of the children who are still missing to this day. Even though Mac only admitted to six of the murders, police are almost positive that he's responsible for at least five more, even though he's never been officially charged with them. I don't know if anything else is happening, but it kind of seems like at this point, police have just moved on. But I think there are a lot of families out there that can't move on. I mean, I know for the families of Stella, Dawn, Brenda, Gary, Roger, Donald, Bruce, Karen, Dorothy, Ramona, and Tommy, moving on isn't an option. There are still so many questions I have around this case. Are those kids under the freeway that so many people drive every single day? What happened to that teenage boy that was with Mac? Was he involved in anything else? What did he go on to do? And are those 11 that police have connected to Mac really all of his victims? Or are there really more families who could potentially get closure if the right people looked at this case? Even though decades have passed, the pain of losing a loved one will never go away. And it's made much more difficult without remains to lay to rest. Even though Mac never told anyone where to find the five that he never confessed to, he did tell investigators where they could find Roger. And I think there could be other victims under the freeway. Someone just needs to go find them. You can find all the source material for this episode on our website, crimejunkiepodcast.com. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at crimejunkiepodcast, and I'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Crime Junkie is an audio Chuck production. So, what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? <coughs> Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Recently, I've been sleeping flat on my belly, and my chiropractor said that if I'm going to do that, I should really have as firm a mattress as possible. So... I didn't have to get a new mattress. I just cranked my sleep number up all the way to 100, and I've avoided any lower back pain that sometimes comes with belly sleeping. J.D. Power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number Store or sleepnumber.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you're anything like me, when you have something weighing on your mind that's taking up time and energy, the best thing you can do is to talk about it. But sometimes that's also one of the hardest things to do, too. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. 
Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Crime Junkie today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Crime Junkie.